0: Welcome to your weekly Constitutional, underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Your host is Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at the Duncan School of Law of Lincoln Memorial University. We're going to be signing today and registering national emergency and... It's a great thing to do. Emergency.
1: Emergency. Emergency. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this. But I'd rather do it much
2: faster. The president erased in our exchange there, he erased any doubt about his motivation for this national emergency, saying, I didn't need to do this, I just wanted to do it faster. Already Democrats have pounced on this. The ACLU, which is going to be challenging this declaration, is already using that in the first sentence of the release they posted today. This morning, in a rambling and frankly, at times, surreal press event, the president of the United States declared a national emergency to get billions more dollars for a Border WALL THAN CONGRESS APPROVED IN THEIR BILL TO HEAD OFF ANOTHER GOVERNMENT shutdown. BUT MANY OF THE FIGURES HE CITED IN SUPPORT OF THE MOVE WHEN HE ACTUALLY CITED FIGURES WERE EITHER QUESTIONABLE OR JUST BOGUS. AND BEYOND THAT, SOME OF HIS OWN WORDS, NOT TO MENTION THE TIMING AND THE STAGING OF THIS, UNDERMINE HIS CASE. THAT THIS PROBLEM, WHICH TRULY IS A PROBLEM, IS ALSO A CRISIS DEMANDING IMMEDIATE, DRASTIC, AND
1: POSSIBLY EXTRA CONSTITUTIONAL ACTION. NOW, THE PRESIDENT MADE THE ANNOUNCEMENT THIS MORNING... NATIONAL EMERGENCIES
2: ARE NOT TO BE SCHEDULED. YOU CAN'T TALK ABOUT NATIONAL EMERGENCIES FOR A COUPLE YEARS, FOR A COUPLE MONTHS, AND THEN SAY, WE'RE GOING TO DO IT NEXT TUESDAY IN THE ROSE GARDEN, IT'S A NATIONAL EMERGENCY.
1: FORTUNATELY, DONALD TRUMP IS NOT THE
2: LAST WORD. THE COURTS WILL BE THE LAST WORD. Um, So forget the fact that he's digging his own grave. This is just, um, look, the only national emergency is that our president is an idiot. Well, he's done it. He said he was going to do it, and now he has. Our president has declared a national emergency on our southern border. And in doing so, he has activated a whole host of statutory powers that supposedly allow him to divert vast sums of money that were intended for other projects and now will be used to build his wall. We're going to speak with Andrew Boyle, a place called the Brennan Center for Justice, who studies such issues and who's going to take us all the way back. What is a national emergency? Where do they come from? And is this president within his powers to declare one?
1: My name is Andrew Boyle. I'm a counsel at the Liberty and National Security Program of the Brennan Center for Justice.
2: Tell me about the Brennan Center. What is that?
1: Uh, the Brennan Center is a part think tank, uh, part public policy shop. And we work on a number of diff- different areas. Uh, we work in areas related to democracy, so voting rights, gerrymandering, money in politics, those types of things. We also work on justice issues, issues related to uh, criminal punishment and reform. And then in the Liberty and National Security Program, we work in a number of different issue areas at the intersection of civil liberties and national security policy.
2: Well, my, my, those sounds like things that we're very interested in. In fact, we've done a number of episodes that touch on those. So I guess we'll have to call you back sometime and talk about some (laughs) of those other things. Today, our subject, of course, is uh, national emergencies, a subject which has been very much in the news lately uh, in the context of Donald Trump's statements that he's going to use that power to build his wall. So... Can we start at the beginning? What exactly is a national emergency and what does the president have to do with it?
1: Uh, A national emergency sort of generally uh, writ large would be a type of situation that is difficult to predict and and in which a a country might want their executive to have powers that they wouldn't normally have for a short amount of time, extraordinary powers uh, for a short amount of time to deal with that particular emergency and then to have those powers recede back and, and to, to have return to the normal balance of power between the various branches of government.
2: This so to- reminds me, of, let's, go, let's go even to a much earlier history, this reminds me of my old college Roman history course where when there was some sort of external threat, the Senate would declare one of the consuls or proconsuls to be a, a temporary dictator so that he could go out and save the city. It's the same sort of theory, isn't it?
1: they would put extraordinary power in the hands of a single individual for a short amount of time. I believe in, in, in Roman times there was sort of a, a, a I think maybe a 60-day limit or something like that, that uh, the, the power is automatically terminated um, after that period. We, we find ourselves in some ways uh, it was, you know, the, it doesn't grant uh, when we declare national emergencies in the United States currently, it doesn't grant total power to the president, but at the same time. Time it allows uh, on our current system it allows those powers to be exercised mostly ad infinitum uh, unless uh, there's the possibility of terminating the emergency. But it does it does sort of come from the same uh, the same idea that was extant at that time.
2: Let's start at the beginning. Where does where does this power come from? Is there a provision for this in the Constitution or is it something that's comes from someplace else.
1: So there's no, uh, our Constitution doesn't really address uh, emergency powers per se. The the closest it comes uh, is uh, discussing the ability uh, to suspend habeas corpus, Um, and that is given to Congress in Article 1 of the Constitution. But when we're talking about emergency powers today, usually what we're talking about are powers that over time Congress has given to the president. Thank um, that, uh, that he can exercise when he declares a national emergency. And of course, it's very difficult to uh, be able to predict all of the types of national emergency that might require the use of these special powers. And so that's why Congress tries to predict some powers that it would be good for an executive to have in certain types of emergencies. And they, they pass that legislation in advance because the thought is potentially the emergency could be so dire. There's no, there's not sufficient time to pass that legislation giving the president that power after the actual emergency uh, occurs. And so they've passed a number of statutes uh, over the decades that give the president certain powers when he declares a national emergency.
2: Okay, we'll get to that, Andrew, and that's uh, the present day. That's the present day circumstance. But again, just to make sure we're grounded here, um, Article Two of the Constitution, which creates the presidency is notoriously vague. I mean, it doesn't talk about enumerated powers like Article 1 does or the enumerated judicial powers that Article 3 mentions. It simply talks about the executive power and uh, charges the president with the duty of of faithfully executing the laws. And so I think it's from that very vagueness uh, that we have this big amorphous ball of something called executive power that various presidents throughout history have, in fact, invoked pretty much on their own in authority. Uh, perhaps the most notable example is Abraham Lincoln, uh, when Congress wasn't even in session and all the stuff he did in the spring and early summer of 1861. So I guess presidents can do this on their own.
1: Presidents certainly have done it on their own, whether they they actually um, can legally or or not, I think is is a broader question. You're you're absolutely right, of course, that um, there are varying degrees um, of uh, beliefs in what they call inherent executive power. You know, Mm -hmm. what are... Uh, what are the bounds of executive power, particularly if uh, if the United States is uh, potentially facing some sort of existential threat? Um, you know, does that mean that uh, the system of checks and balances goes out the window, or does it mean that it, re- it, re- it remains to some degree? You're right, um, of course. Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus without um, getting permission of uh, of the Congress. That was uh, later sort of ratified after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, by Congress. You know, another example that people often discuss is, is what resulted in the famous Youngstown steel and seizure case, uh, um, where the president uh, sought to seize steel mills uh, during the Korean War. Um, and uh, and the, the Supreme Court said, well, you know, Congress has exclusively uh, explicitly said that uh, you don't have the power to do this. And so when you're acting in this way to To seize these steel mills, your your power is at its lowest ebb, even though that was a time of war, and uh, would not support the president's action in that regard.
2: Yeah, it's kind of you know sometimes presidents, notably again Lincoln, he's he's confronted with an actual rebellion and a secession movement, and Congress isn't in session, and Washington D.C. is very strategically vulnerable. You know, being right across the river, basically from from the leading southern state, um, and, you know, the armies are already forming. So that's one situation, and as you point out, Lincoln's unilateral actions of that spring were eventually blessed by Congress, Um, and Lincoln himself expressed a great deal of reluctance to exercise those powers, but felt he was ultimately justified because the very existence of the nation was at stake. Then subsequent presidents have done similar things um, leading up to the case you just mentioned, which, of course, was during the Korean War. Franklin Roosevelt had declared a national emergency uh, just prior to the U.S. entry into the Second World War, uh, pretty much on his own authority. But that does bring us back to what you were just talking about. Then we have the Korean War, and let's talk a little bit more about the, the Youngstown case because that's probably the most notable example, isn't it, of Congress smacking the president back when he tried to do too much?
1: Yeah, it's certainly um you know it's certainly a case that is discussed even today when we talk about um, you know the president exercising um, certain authorities but you know the, the the question of how does a presidential authority intersect with uh, congressional authority and and uh, you know how does the president uh, allowed to exercise his powers particularly in in situations where um, uh, there are potentially uh, situations of war or threats to the nation or something like that.
2: Yeah, and the Korean War though we tend to have forgotten about it these days. In fact, I think it's sometimes called the forgotten war. Was really a a tinderbox sort of war. It was the first war that occurred uh, that involved uh, on one side the United States and on the other side the then Soviet Union and even the Chinese who were aligned with the Soviet Union then. And it was the first war to occur after not just one country but two countries had nuclear weapons. Um, So it really was, you know, it had a great potential for worldwide conflagration. Um, And it was in that context that Truman tried to seize the steel plants because the workers were on strike. And uh, that led to the challenge, and then it led to that famous concurrence um, by Justice Jackson, Robert Jackson, and that—that's really what's mostly cited from that case, isn't
1: it? It is, it is, and, and it's very eloquent, and 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 you know i think it's also important historically to remember that when justice jackson is writing that he's coming off of um or, or uh, has been uh, a few years in the past of that period um the chief prosecutor uh, at the nuremberg trials so mm-hmm. was very um conscious of the possibility for you know the the toll that Um, um, and the high stakes of wartime. And, you know, and nevertheless felt that um, there needed to be um, a maintenance of a balance of power, even in dire circumstances, um, to uh, uh, prevent, you know, a democracy sort of um, spinning out of control into some other form of more autocratic government.
2: Yep. And he came up with an interesting sort of three-part analysis. He said, you know, the president's, Powers are at their highest when whatever power he has under Article Two is combined with other, with whatever additional power Congress might want to give him pursuant to Article One, and you've got both Congress and the President acting in concert. Well, the President's powers are at his zenith, and then on the other end of the spectrum, he's at, at its lowest point when, as was the case there, uh, the President was acting in opposition to Congress. And then, of course, all the problems occur in that middle section when the president's acting on his own and Congress hasn't spoken. And then, uh, as you say, you know, you're trying with, by putting the situation into one of these three scenarios to you know, maintain that balance between the two branches of government.
1: That's right. Um, and, and, and I would say, in addition, um, some, you know, some of the difficulty also comes um, from, obviously, interpreting when Congress has spoken by the various actions yeah. it takes. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think in that circumstance, Truman had asked Congress for the authority to take over the steel plants, and Congress simply hadn't answered him. Uh, But as I like to say, if you ask a girl to a dance and you don't get a response, well, that's your response. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a situation they found themselves in. um, But arguably, that situation could have been characterized as that middle one where Congress had not technically spoken. Um, Jackson and the majority didn't interpret it that way. And so ultimately, they, they gave Harry Truman a bit of a slap on the wrist and said that what he had done had gone too far. It's your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and my guest today is Andrew Boyle, who is a counsel in the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. He's talking about what a national emergency is and whether our current president can use one to build that wall. Stick around. weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and in case you're just joining us, I'll mention that I'm speaking with Andrew Boyle of the Brennan Center for Justice today about national emergencies. What are they? Who gets to declare them? What happens when such a declaration is made? And specifically, can our current president use one to build his wall? Before the break, we had gotten up to the 1950s when President Harry Truman found himself in the uncomfortable position of having the Supreme Court tell him that he had gone too far. But that, I think, sets up where we are in the present day. Since that time, Congress has acted statutorily. And so what happened since the 1950s? Bring it from there, please, if you could, toward the present day.
1: Sure. So let me first start off by talking about the period before 1976, and I'll I'll get Mm -hmm. to why 1976 is an important date. In the period before 1976, the president had access to a number of these powers. There were over 400 of them that Congress had passed over the time, giving the president certain powers when he declares a national emergency. 400? Um, At that time, yeah.
2: Wow. So basically, Congress passes a law and the president signs. It that says, at the moment you, sir, Mr. President, declare a national emergency, this kicks in, or this kicks in, or this kicks in. That's right. Wow,
1: and and there was really no constraints at that time over the president's ability to declare a national emergency, um, and so the president could just say, "I declare a national emergency," and automatically had access to all of these powers. And that was uh, that was sort of the state of play. And this became, um, you know, when this came onto the radar of Congress, that there were uh, at the time I think four national emergencies in effect. And all of these powers were available to him. And they sort of said, you know, that the president is, is veering into a, a place where he could essentially run the country without us because, based on all of these emergency powers. And in the post-Watergate... Era, okay, wait a second.
2: As of, as of the early 1970s, you're telling me, you've got four distinct national emergencies that have been declared over the preceding decades that had not expired. And so all of those powers were in the hands of the president. They had just basically been transferred from Congress to the president on a quasi-permanent basis.
1: That's right. right. That
2: is (laughs) remarkable. I mean, whoa, that sounds worse than the Romans in some sense. I mean, at least the Romans had a time limit.
1: Right, exactly. And and also, there was no, um, there was very little transparency about, you know, uh, which of the powers the president was actually using or not, um, because he could just, he automatically had access to all of the powers once he declared the national emergency.
2: So he could declare an agricultural emergency and then be doing something in foreign policy. Exactly. Or exactly. declare a foreign policy emergency and be doing something in agriculture. Right. Exactly. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: And so, um, you know, in the post-Watergate era, there was a lot of concern about potential executive uh, abuse. Senator Frank Church was part of a committee that looked at uh, these emergency powers and said, this has gone too far. We have to set up a system that constrains the president's ability to use these emergency powers further in the future. And, you know, again, with the emergency powers, there's always that line-drawing exercise of how do we constrain the president's powers so that they can't be abused, but also um, not to constrain him so much that they aren't useful in a true emergency. And they passed a law called the National Emergencies Act. Um, They terminated all of the previous emergencies, the, the four previous emergencies, and they passed a law called the National Emergencies Act in 1976. And that's why that date is uh, is important. And it uh, took effect in 1978. Um, and it was meant to constrain the president's use uh, of emergency powers going forward. Um And it did that in a number of ways. Um, first of all, uh, it, it, it required the president, when he declared a national emergency, um, to transmit the declaration of that national emergency to Congress and place it in the federal register so that there was a certain amount of transparency about, you know, when the emergency was being declared. But also it required the president to identify which of the statutory powers he was going to use under that emergency. It didn't constrain his ability to to use those powers. Um, but he had to identify, you know, which of the statutes that were available to him he intended to use, and so it it firmed up a bit from the previous uh, iteration of of how emergency powers were being used. Um, the president's uh, ability to uh, utilize powers that were um, related to the particular national emergency, as far as transparency, uh, as far as transparency, did that. Um, it also did um it also uh imposed some other procedural requirements. Um for example, it required the president to renew an emergency every year or it automatically expired. Now the president can renew emergencies on his own say so. It doesn't require anything more than that, but still um it, it had an automatic sunset built in. Um, so that was, uh, good. We would argue it hasn't gone far enough, and I'm sure we'll have an opportunity, um, to talk about that, but it was also, um, a good step in the right direction. Um, it allowed, uh, Cong- it, 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 provided that Congress was supposed to meet every six months to, de- to consider all of the declarations of national emergency, uh, that were in effect, um, uh, and to consider whether they should be terminated, um, it, can, it, it required uh, that um, an agency or the executive branch keep reports of how much money was being spent in relation to each of the emergencies. Um, and it also um, uh, set up a process whereby Congress, by a simple majority vote of each of those houses of Congress, what was known as a um, concurrent resolution, um, would be able to um, terminate the national emergency. Now, not, not all of those provisions have worked out the way uh, that we might have h- hoped that they would work out, and I'm happy to talk about that if that would be useful.
2: Yeah, tell us. I mean, that does sound like it's, uh, as you say, a step forward, allowing the president some sort of flexibility, but yet establishing accountability and sunset provisions. So has it worked as you describe
1: uh it 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 hasn't worked uh, and that's part of the reason why we think that there's a need for a national emergency uh, let me first start with um uh with the congressional checks that were put into the National Emergencies Act. Uh, uh, Congress said that um, it, should, uh, it should meet every six months to declare a national emergency. Uh, uh, sorry, to consider the national emergencies that have been declared and whether they should be terminated. Uh, Congress has never once met uh, to un, uh, uh, under that provision of the law, um, has not fulfilled its obligations under the National Emergency Act to meet. And consider whether it should terminate uh, any of the emergencies that are currently in place.
0: Let's um, let's
2: stop there, Andrew, before we go on, because I know I know what lots and lots of people are thinking at this very moment is wait, wait a second, that's the law. How can Congress get away with breaking the law? And the answer is, Congress does what Congress wants. That's right.
1: That's <laughs>
2: and the, the only problem. accountability is the ballot box, right?
1: That's that's correct. Um, there was there actually was a challenge, um, I believe, in 1983 on an unrelated issue, um, uh, where an individual said, "Well, this law can no longer be in, in effect um, uh, because um, because Congress has never fulfilled its obligation to meet every six months." To consider, you know, whether it should remain in effect. Um, and it only got that, that case only got as far as the First Circuit. Um, and the First Circuit decided at the time. Um, that it was up to Congress, that even though I think that the specific words in the the statute say shall or or some sort of imperative language like that, um, that essentially uh, um, it had to be read in a way that it was up to Congress um, to to, uh, carry out out its own obligations in the way that they wrote the statute. And if they choose not to meet every six months, then that that was sufficient for the the First Circuit Court of Appeals.
2: It sounds like the political question uh, analysis. Um, sometimes courts will simply say that a certain question is not for them. And it's, it's a badly named doctrine because it does not mean that courts will not hear controversial cases. Of course they do. They hear abortion cases and gay rights cases all the time. But it does mean that courts will sometimes simply step back and say, yeah, technically, we've got jurisdiction and maybe this person even has standing to bring this case. But we just don't think this is something that the courts are supposed to opine on. This is something that is within the realm of Congress and or the president to either enforce or not enforce, and we're just going to leave it to them.
1: That's right. That's right. I uh, I don't know if they specifically cited yeah. – uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But it sounds like it. Cited. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, either that or um, they decided that the challengers didn't have standing, which often happens in these cases where you've got these generalized complaints. Uh, about Congress. But the courts, one way or the other, are typically reluctant to get involved in these things. So that goes back to that basic question that I know is in people's minds. You know, How can Congress pass a law requiring itself to do something and then not do it? Well, because that's the basic problem with a lawmaking body passing laws to govern itself. In fact, whenever Congress passes some sort of balanced budget resolution or some sort of budgetary control measure trying to make itself... Fulfill its duty to come up with a budget or to compromise on a budget or not to run huge deficits. It it's often subject to the same fate. Congress does what Congress wants to do.
1: Right. right.
2: Okay. Exactly. All right. Please continue. That was the, so. That's one failure of the National Emergencies Act. So how else has it failed to operate?
1: um well let me um as my second uh, point on that let me let me uh, address another way um that um con- what was supposed to be a fairly robust congressional check um has failed and this is not as much um uh congress's fault as as the first point which is that i mentioned that they um uh, they had written into the law uh, uh, initially um, a claim, uh, uh, the ability of Congress to terminate an emergency by a concurrent resolution, which is simply a majority, um, a majority vote in each of the houses of Congress. That that uh, process, uh, what what they called a legislative veto, um, was found to be unconstitutional in 1983 in a case um, that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is the INS v. Chada yes. case um and uh and so after that let, process, let me interrupt
2: there too because that's a nuts an, again it's sort of obscure uh sure. congress actually had passed a lot of these so-called legislative vetoes that is they would give power to the president um to or maybe specifically to one of the executive agencies to do x y and z but then they would reserve the right or the power to themselves or sometimes even a committee uh within one body of Congress to go in and simply undo what the executive had done, and that's hence the term legislative veto. And Congress liked this. Uh, It was a a way to let the the executive do lots of stuff and yet still have a a check on them. But as you say, in in the Chata case, uh, the the Supreme Court said, no, that's not the way things work here. Once you've passed a law that the executive is in charge of executing it, and if you don't like what they're doing, well, you can cut their funding or you can... You know, do your congressional oversight and hold hearings and chastise them or whatever you're going to do, but you're not going to be able to simply undo what the executive's done because that is in itself an executive act, and you are a legislature.
1: That's yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So
2: that undid that part of the 1976 uh, National Emergencies Act.
1: Right, and so then hmm. Congress had to go back and and reform that and replace the concurrent resolution, which was just required a simple majority. Um, of each of the houses, with what is the process that is used uh, essentially to pass a law, which is a joint resolution, um, and, and what in effect what that uh, what that means is that today, if if Congress wants to terminate an emergency declared by the president, they have to be able to pass a law terminating terminating that emergency by a veto-proof majority. Um, And the way that that uh, would play out is that Congress uh, would pass, you know, if the president declares a national emergency today, Congress passes a law to terminate that emergency next week. It then goes to the desk of the president um, for his signature. And if he vetoes that, um, they can only override that with a two-thirds majority in each of the houses. Um, so so, it, so it, not much
2: it, of a power, really.
1: It, exactly. It makes it much more difficult um, uh, for Congress um, to terminate uh, those emergencies. Um, so that, that is uh, one, another way that they sort of – what was intended as a congressional check uh, on these emergency powers has, um, has, has uh, not been as effective as uh, perhaps – was originally intended. Um, and, and, and finally, just looking at, um, at the numbers, we can see that uh, the National Emergencies Act procedures have not stemmed the abuse of emergency powers as, as significantly um, as we might have hoped. Uh, uh, for instance, um, there are currently 31 emergencies in effect in the United oh, States. Oh,
2: no, there were four before the act, and now there are 31 after the act?
1: that's that's correct now you you have to take into account that those uh, those 31 nas- uh, national emergencies currently in effect uh only each of them only utilizes particular statutes whereas the other the prior four utilize uh, potentially utilized all of the uh emergency powers but still um you you can see that uh that there are a lot of emergencies in effect right now um and and Uh, I'll also tell you that many of these emergencies have been in effect for a long, long time because they are continually renewed by presidents, um, you know, from presidents on both sides, uh, coming from both sides of the aisle. In fact, the longest emergency that is still running today was declared in 1979, um, and that has been renewed every year since that, uh, since that declaration of emergency. And what was, what, what emergency. was the
2: emergency that goes all the way back to 1979?
1: Uh, that was the, um, uh, from the Iran hostage crisis. I think um, that
2: one might have been resolved. I think the uh, hostages are back.
1: I seem to recall
2: that seeing that on television
1: the hostages are back um but um uh but it's a, it's very illustrative of of why um you know, of some of the failures of this type of system which is that uh, under that emergency declaration the president used certain powers to impose sanctions on uh on Iran um and those sanctions are still in place, and you know presidents uh, since that time have wanted those sanctions to remain in place. And rather than going to Congress for a vote to uh, pass laws, they just uh, are have, are content to renew this uh, emergency year in and year out to maintain those sanctions on Iran.
2: Do you sense that there's any meaningful review going on or any meaningful sort of oversight going on within the relevant congressional committees? Or are we simply on autopilot when it comes to renewing these things?
1: Um, Well... In terms of uh, renewing the national emergencies, Congress doesn't have a role in, in the renewal of the national emergencies. that is that is uh, purely left to the executive branch. right.
2: but I mean each you know each one of these things is supposedly specific, and so each one of these things theoretically falls under the jurisdiction of this or that committee, maybe more than one committee. Do you sense that those committees are are actively considering this and and acquiescing from a reasoned perspective, or are they simply ignoring it and focusing on other things?
1: Uh, I think that prior to recent times um, that uh, congress was um, was content to allow the process to uh, to continue as it was. There wasn't a lot of concern, there wasn't a lot of pushback on the use of emergency powers um, I think that uh you know one aspect of uh President Trump's threat to use emergency powers to obtain funding for for the wall that he would like to build uh, has that that it has raised the profile of emergency powers, certainly in the national dialogue, but also amongst uh, amongst uh, members of Congress. And uh, there is um, uh, additional movement and concern now about reforming these powers and the ability of the president to use them um, uh, because – uh, because of what is transpiring with President, Trump, President Trump's threat to use them.
2: You're listening to your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm having a delightful conversation with Andrew Boyle of the Brennan Center for Justice about this current of question of the national emergency. What is it? Who gets to declare it? What happens when such a declaration is made? And how will it likely be challenged? Stick around. Time to finish our discussion with Andrew Boyle of the Brennan Center for Justice, all about national emergencies and whether our current president might use one to build that wall. Can he do it?
1: Well, um, the, there's a couple of questions sort of bound up in that. The, the first question is, can he declare a national emergency? And there's very few restrictions under the National Emergencies Act uh, on a uh, President's ability to declare a national emergency. for for example, There's no additional definition of what a a national emergency is in the National Emergencies Act. So the president has quite a a broad range of ability to act in in that regard. But however, you also have to look to the plain meaning of what a national emergency is. So there are, it doesn't mean that he can just um, uh, uh, take anything and and declare the national emergency. There are some, uh, you know, those terms, national emergency, uh, will have some meaning if they are ever debated um, in court. Uh, So you're basically saying the
2: initial thing is that the president supposedly is going to declare these things. But, of course, we always assume that the president's acting in good faith and on a reasonable basis. There could be a court challenge. And you can already see the outlines of this forming because even as uh, Trump goes to the border and – talks about hordes of people who are coming in caravans to assault our border and even deploys troops down that way. You've got the mayors of the various cities along the way and the Congress representatives, congressional representatives from those districts, uh, and the mayors of this, uh, the governors of the states basically saying, what emergency? You know, where, where, is right. this, where is this emergency? So you can already see the opposite sides coming together. So you, you think that there would actually be a court case challenging that declaration itself.
1: That's right. I think I think uh the 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 court challenge or challenges would would um certainly attack uh the whether the declaration of national emergency was um uh was legitimate. Um I think that they would also attack the particular statutes that the president might try to use to move money around um and I can I can you know certainly uh, happy to talk about those the, the Yeah, let's talk about there. that
2: thing because I mean it, it Who even knows if the courts will agree to decide whether the president's emergency is legitimate or not? I mean, they could theoretically, but as we said before, they're very reluctant, very reluctant courts to step in on something that they perceive as being a a political decision by a political branch. Um, But let's talk about some of the specifics and some, some other bases that might be used to challenge such a declaration
1: uh sure i i mean i think also it's important to mention that, that that courts are also reluctant uh or or are also deferential to the executive um in the realm of national security
0: yes um
1: uh so this is not just uh you know a business case or something like that um there's a fair amount of deference, and, and there's also uh, the question about you know, what evidence will they look to uh, uh, and consider when they're considering whether it's a legit, legitimate uh, national emergency or not. We saw, um, uh, as, as you're aware, um, last term in the Trump v. Hawaii case, which is um, – uh, Yeah, the so-called
2: sort of Muslim up, ban, yeah.
1: That's right, the so-called Muslim ban case, which was um, addressing the um, – the third iteration of Trump's uh, Muslim ban, which they had sort of continuously renewed in order to, to attempt to put some distance between the president's uh, statements while on the campaign trail and um uh, regarding um, the entrance of, of Muslims to the United States and trying to shore up uh, what they consider the more legitimate basis um, for the visa restrictions uh, for certain countries. Um, and the, pres- uh, the, the Supreme Court, at least at the uh, at the injunction level, um, stage of the case, that is not on the particular merits, which are still being debated, are still being litigated in the district court, but at the injunction stage of the case, was willing to sort of look past, um, the president's, um, statements on the campaign trail and look at the, um, um, the other, uh, justification for that, um, uh, Muslim ban that the, that the government put forward. And there might be some, analogous process here. Of course, that's all speculation. We don't know what exactly they would put forward if if the president was to declare a national emergency. Um, But anyway, I'm I'm happy to talk uh, about a couple of the laws that um, uh,
0: uh,
1: people are are thinking that the president might use under a declaration of national emergency um, if, uh, if he goes down this route. Um, the first uh, is, is um, at uh, 10 U.S.C., that's U.S. Code uh, Section 2808. Um, and that is essentially um, a law that allows the president to, um, to move money um, that has been allocated but not uh, ob- obligated by Congress um, for military construction projects. Um to move that for uh, new military construction projects that are in support of the armed services uh, or the armed forces um you know and, and each of these laws will these terms will be a, another part of any potential litigation is whether these terms are satisfied so is um for example, would building the border wall qualify as military construction in the same um, there's other uh, another portion of that statute that um, dis- uh, defines military construction, um, which seems to indicate that they're talking about construction on military bases. Um, and so that would be uh, difficult for uh, construction that is on, say, civilian property um, uh, or off of military bases along the border. Um, it also says that it has to be in-, in support of the armed forces. Um, it may be difficult to justify Um, uh, uh, the building of the border wall um, as being in support of the armed forces, although, you know, as you mentioned earlier, President Trump um, has... Send some armed forces uh, to the border, um, perhaps uh, you know it's possible that that is uh, part of laying the groundwork for a, p- a potential emergency declaration, um, although obviously that's speculation on my part um, by, the, by the
2: sheerest coincidence, Andrew, my very first job was at the chief counsel's office at the Army Corps of Engineers
1: oh, okay. a- and
2: the military construction budget was handled through the Corps of engineers and um The general concept is that if you've appropriated money for one purpose, it's very hard to take that money and put it for another purpose. In fact, you run afoul of something called the Anti-Deficiency Act if you actually spend money that hasn't been appropriated by Congress uh, or for a different purpose. Um, So it's very, very serious about this stuff. And I had exactly the same reaction. It was like, is this really military construction money? It doesn't sound like it. Perhaps if he puts turrets or, or holes for cannon in the wall and, and actually mans it with military people, he could have it morph into military construction.
1: Well, he's talked about various uh, – there's been discussion of various types of wall. I haven't heard any that uh, include turrets yet, but I guess it's always possible. Um,
2: yeah, I guess. All right. So that's one possible thing he could do, uh, but obviously it would be
1: challenged. What's another yeah and the other one uh, also relates to your former employer. Um the other one is um uh, is located at 33 USC 2293. Um, and that's um that has to to do with moving money around um from different uh uh army civil works projects. So for example, um uh, the president theoretically could say we're no longer going to, we're, the money that has been allocated to, say, um, uh, reconstruct uh, the coastline after storm damage, we're going to halt those projects of reconstructing the coastline um, and we're going to take that money um, and put it towards some other um, uh, Department of the Army um, uh, project. Now, uh you know some issues with that first of all is that um under the the terms of that particular law um it 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 uh discusses approved projects um uh, and it's you know oh, it's, boy. many people reading that would say well approved projects means by congress um and uh and congress has has explicitly not approved um, yeah. Building uh, of the wall. Most so that people, would be one problem.
2: Most people don't realize, Andrew, that there are essentially two steps you have to go through before you build a civil works project at the Corps of Engineers. Step number one is authorization for the project. That's what you're talking about now. Right. And then step number two is actually appropriating money for it. Um, That's right. And That's so right. What, what you're talking about here, at least it sounds like, is that you've got authorized projects that have yet to be funded, or at least the money hasn't been obligated yet, that means you haven't actually signed a contract with somebody saying, I'm going to give you this, these $10 billion or whatever. Um, so that's a huge issue, legally speaking, as to whether that statute actually does what, the, what we think the president might want to use it for. The other thing is political. I mean, these projects take decades to get authorized and, and, and money appropriated for them, let alone ultimately built. And lots and lots of people at the state, and local, and federal levels have put lots and lots of political capital into this. And, the, and if this president starts taking money away from projects that people have been anticipating for decades, wow, I think he's going to run into a lot of very unhappy constituents.
1: And, and yeah, and not uh, not only to and, and to mention that also the, the direct effect that potentially that you know halting those projects or reducing the work on those projects could affect uh, have on the on the particular projects themselves, whether that's you know recovering from fire damage or or storm damage or or what have you, or, or um, dredging there's...
2: a harbor so that you can handle the bigger ships that are coming through the expanded Panama Canal, that's a that's huge right. thing that the Corps does. It improves rivers and harbors and. You know cities like Charleston or Savannah or or New York or wherever these projects are pending, I think they'd scream bloody murder if all of a sudden the the money were taken away from those projects to build a wall.
1: That's right, I, and I, you know it would be interesting to see if he if the president goes down this route, uh, which projects um, are are targeted and whether they're you know what the sort of political calculus is um, there and and. Um, I'll also mention um you know, another issue with any potential litigation uh, regarding a declaration of national emergency would be the issue um, of standing. that is who yes. who is sufficiently injured by um by the President's declaration of national emergency and the use of these powers in order to bring uh, in order to bring a case one possibility, although a remote one is congressional standing. Um, Congressional standing, as you know, is a a difficult um, uh, line to walk. Um, It's often seen as too attenuated or as a political question. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, we think a a more likely litigant is probably someone who um, perhaps owns property along the border. For example, the the government only owns about a third of the property along the Mm -hmm. southern border, so they would somehow have to obtain the ability to build on the rest of that property if they were going to, you know, really have a, a um, but uh, but typically the government
2: can take property at once. It's just a question of compensation. I think a more likely scenario is that you have a, you know, say the port authority of New York wants, a, you know, something dredged in its Harbor and it's eagerly awaiting this to happen. And all of a sudden the money's pulled away. And all of a sudden, that entity is losing money and has is it going to lose all the investments it made in anticipation of this. Maybe those governmental entities uh, or those local people who are directly affected by this uh, taking away of their money, maybe they would have standing.
1: Uh, I think I think that could be very uh, very possible. Right? Okay, we're uh, about out of time,
2: Andrew. This is fascinating. Uh, any any final thoughts?
1: The important silver lining to come out of this whole process is that this is an area that is ripe for reform, and we hope that uh, Congress gets busy um, enacting reforms to prevent the ability of future presidents to uh, potentially abuse emergency powers.
2: Very important issue. We could have three potential, if you will, avenues of resistance, to coin a phrase. Congress itself, if it had a veto-proof majority. The courts, if they are willing to step in. But ultimately, perhaps the ballot box, because that's ultimately how you deal with a president that you don't like. And maybe he'll make enough enemies during this process that uh, that would change the outcome in 2020. But now we're just speculating. But Andrew, what a uh, a very, very pleasant time we've had today. And I thank you very much for sharing your wisdom with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
2: So it's another exciting constitutional quiz, and I'm here with Ms. Excitement herself, Emily Voss, the quiz gal. How are you, quiz gal?
0: I'm excited as always, Stuart.
2: I can tell from your voice just how excited you are. Do we have a contestant for our quiz? Yes. Well, who, is you, who are you, Ms. Contestant?
0: My name is Raisha Moore.
2: And where are you from, Raisha?
0: Knoxville, Tennessee.
2: Knoxville, Tennessee, a great, great Town. All right, Emily, do we have a tough, tough question for Aisha? Because I can tell, being from Knoxville, she must be very smart.
0: Excellent. Well, yes. So, my question for you today in which one of these cases did the Supreme Court rule that the Constitution protects a right to privacy? Mm. Option A Brown v. Board of Education. Option B McCullough v. Maryland. Option C Griswold v. Connecticut. Or option D, Korematsu v. United States.
2: So you got four cases, uh, and you want one that talks about privacy rights. Yes, sir. Raisha, do you need to, do you need to hear those again? Is it
0: e- option B?
2: Which is which one?
0: Uh, it was the Connecticut one. Griswold
2: versus Conne- not Brown versus Board of Education.
0: Uh, is it that one?
2: Not Korematsu no not mccullough versus maryland no you're gonna go straight to griswold versus connecticut
0: uh actually no i'm gonna go with
2: you're gonna go with griswold versus connecticut why (laughs) i'm
0: not sure
2: Uh uh-huh you're not sure just it's just something that popped into your head
0: (laughs) yeah i'll do the brown versus board wait a second you're gonna
2: stick with griswold right
0: yeah, I'm gonna stick with Griswold.
2: Okay, but I wanna know why. I wanna know why you're sticking with Griswold. I mean it's not like that's a household term. Did you just have a really well, good really good college course or civics teacher, somebody who taught you that?
0: I think I did. I think I had a good civics teacher.
2: Well you're exactly right. Do you remember what Griswold was about?
0: Uh not exactly.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm, jump, a- I'm jumping the gun here. I didn't let Emily give you the official word. Emily, is she correct?
0: She is correct. You are correct yes. right Griswold here. Well done. Connecticut okay. is the right answer. Although Stuart tried very hard to talk you out of it.
2: I sure did. Yes. You, just, you, you just blew it away. Okay, do you remember what Griswold was about? Uh,
0: No, I don't remember the details.
2: It's actually kind of salacious. Um, uh, It was about contraception. The, the, uh, the state of Connecticut actually made it a criminal violation for a doctor to provide you with contraception, and uh, there was a doctor, um, and he saw, thought this was really stupid, and twice uh, he tried to uh, bring this case to the United States Supreme Court. The first time was in the case called Poe versus Ullman. And they basically held because he, actually, he hadn't actually violated the law and he hadn't actually been arrested. He didn't have something called standing. So then I think he went back and violated the law and actually took the risk uh, of doing this. And uh, the court considered for the first time whether a state could make it illegal uh, to- Oh, wow. Yeah, for people to have contraceptives. And the, uh, the majority opinion was written by probably the most liberal Supreme Court justice in history, William O. Douglas, um, and it was a, a famous opinion where he basically said, uh, do we want the government to be uh, enforcing a law like this? How would you enforce a law like this other than, I think the phrase was by invading the sacred precincts of the marital bedroom? And uh, that, of course, was an important decision in its own right. But then you can you can draw pretty much a straight line from this decision, which was 1965 to eight years later with Roe versus Wade, because the concept of reproductive, privacy rights uh, was really initiated with uh, Griswold. So congratulations to you, Raisha, for knowing that.
0: Thank you. (laughs)
2: Absolutely. And thank you very much, Emily, for that seemingly very tough question that that Raisha just blew away.
0: Well, thank you, Stuart, (laughs) and thank you.
2: (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Raisha. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to Andrew Boyle of the Brennan Center for Justice. We're discussing national emergencies with us and whether our current president can use them to build his wall. There's a timely subject for you. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephant. Check them out on SoundCloud. My name is Stuart Harris. And remember, you are a part of the American experiment.